Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars, and today is Saturday, September 11th, 2021. Thank you for staying with me for these last 23 weeks and counting. If you'd like to support this podcast, my Venmo account is at MDM773. Again, Venmo account is at MDM773. 10% of any donations I receive will go to Second Harvest Food Bank of Southern Louisiana in response to the Hurricane Ida disaster there. And in just those few short sentences that I uttered, I mentioned two life-changing events that we've all been through, even though I didn't name the pandemic by name. It is because of the pandemic that I found the time to conceive of this podcast idea and also found the time to write a book. I wonder what creativity we will see rise from the ashes in Louisiana. And I really believe if we look and we listen, we will see great creativity coming out of Southern Louisiana. And of course, this being September 11th, we remember the victims of 9-11. I cannot believe it has been 20 years. And that is a day that has changed our world and America's very culture and even how we treat each other and other human beings. So, um, episode 23 is revisiting the idea of God. I believe the last episode where I spoke of God, I spoke of God the Mother. And today I'm going to talk about God in the terms of the laws of science. Because there's a lot of debate. It's ongoing debate. Some people believe in God. Other people say, I believe in science. And yet there's other others who believe in both. And the first two parties say there's no way you can believe in both at the same time. And then there are other other others who believe that God and science are one of the same, one and the same. You know, a rose is a rose by any other name. That kind of uh, idea. And my goal in discussing this topic is not to change your mind or to change your long-held steadfast beliefs in one way or another, but I'm presenting this as an invitation to you to open your mind and your heart to another point of view where you're not going to fight with someone else. This is um, a platform where you can just listen and allow yourself, you know, without, you know, a Greek chorus around you to just entertain another idea, really. Um, Or at least have room in your mind and in your heart for different and opposing ideas to consider. And that maybe the person with whom you disagree might have a good reason for believing what they believe. So, do you think that what some people call God is what other people call the laws of science? Do these two things have 
nothing to do with each other or everything to do with each other or something in between. This is what I want you to consider. Now let's talk about the scientific laws of the universe. A scientific law is a specific statement based on an empirical data. And its truth is generally confined to a certain set of conditions. A scientific theory often seeks to synthesize a body of evidence or observations of particular phenomena. It's generally, though by no means always, a bigger testable statement about how nature operates. And I'm going to be going through a lot of these theories and just know, like just even in secular terms, some scientists are not going to believe all of these theories. It doesn't hold weight with them. So even in the secular world, there's differences, just as in the religious world, there's differences about what God is and how important God is to the religion. There are some religions that are polytheistic and are more attuned to human behavior, whereas a very similar religion will say, no, there's only one God and, and that God should be worshipped. So there's, even within the different realms of what people value or what they believe, um, there's still room for uh, debate, okay? So um, in discussing these scientific theories, none of these necessarily needs God to happen but no one has ever disproved that God brings about creation through what we call science. And if you look back at the Old Testament, the very first chapter, Genesis, which was originally written in ancient Hebrew, the word creation is the same word as organization. Just keep that in mind as we discuss these topics. So um, I'm going to start out with the Big Bang Theory. Okay, a lot of people uh, believe in this, whether they're religious or not. And um, I'm going to pause for a moment to take a drink. Okay. The Big Bang Theory postulates that the universe began almost 14 billion years ago, with a massive expansion event. At the time, the universe was confined to a single point encompassing all of the universe's matter. That original moment continues today as the universe keeps expanding outward. That is the Big Bang Theory. Stephen Hawk Hawking was a vocal champion of the Big Bang Theory, this idea that the universe began by exploding suddenly out of a ultra-dense singularity smaller than an atom. From this speck emerged all the matter, energy, and empty space that the universe would ever contain. And all that raw material evolved into the cosmos we perceive today by following a strict set of scientific laws. 
to Hawking and to other scientists who believe the same way he does, the combined laws of gravity, relativity, quantum physics, and a few other rules could explain everything that ever happened or ever will happen in our known universe. Hawking's explanation begins with quantum mechanics, which explains how subatomic particles behave. In quantum studies, it's common to see subatomic particles like protons and electrons that seemingly appear out of nowhere and they stick around for a while and then they disappear again to a completely different location. Because the universe was once the size of a subatomic particle itself, it's plausible that it behaved similarly during the Big Bang. Hawking's wrote that the universe itself, in all of its mind-boggling vastness and complexity, could simply have popped into existence without violating the known laws of nature. But that still doesn't explain away the possibility that God created that proton-sized singularity and then flipped the quantum mechanical switch that allowed it to pop. But Hawking says science has an explanation here, too. To illustrate, he points to the physics of black holes, collapsed stars that are so dense that nothing, including light, can escape their pool. Black holes, like the universe before the Big Bang, condense into a singularity. In this ultra-packed point of mass, gravity is so strong that it distorts time as well as light and space. So, in the depths of a black hole, time does not exist. That's a fact. But is it possible that eternity exists in the black hole? We don't know because we haven't been down the black hole. Now, because time does not exist within a black hole, time itself could not have existed before the Big Bang, according to Hawking's. So he says what happened before the Big Bang is there was no time before the Big Bang. And to him, that is the answer. But again, hmm. Hmm, was there eternity? And there are other scientists who believe in eternity, maybe not the eternity that Christians or other religious uh, philosophies believe in, but they do believe in um, uh, a self-existing state uh, within um, different particles, atoms, organisms, etc. Anyway, Hawking continued to write, we have finally found something that doesn't have a cause because there was no time for a cause to exist in. For me, this means that there is no possibility of a creator because there is no time for a creator to have existed in. 
He's speaking very logically. And then um, astrophysicist Alex Filipenko of the University of California at Berkeley adds, the Big Bang could have occurred as a result of just the laws of physics being there. With the laws of physics, you get universes. Also very logical. Our universe could have popped into existence 13.7 billion years ago without any divine help whatsoever. Many researchers believe this. But the science writer Timothy Ferris wrote of George Lemaitre, the Belgian Catholic priest and scientist who confirmed the theory mathematically, the universe might have begun as an infinitely small pinpoint in mathematical terms, that's a singularity, at time zero, a day when space was infinitely curved and all matter and all energy was concentrated into a single quantum of energy. This he agrees with. And then he says and agrees that this expanding cone of the universe would have a starting point commonly known as the Big Bang. Now, if you look at Psalms chapter 19, it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So I don't think it's a far stretch to say that um, or to except that some people believe this is talking about the big, what we call the Big Bang. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's conceivable. So if you more than read the book of Genesis, if you do a real deep dive into it and really research it, when God talks about the six days of active creation and the one day of rest, first of all, those numbers are, um, those are symbolic, first of all. But uh, he uses those numbers and he says there's six days of active creation and one day of rest. But if you look, there's two creations. Everything was created spiritually first before they were created physically. So for people who believe in science, as well as God, you can argue that we are still in the physical creation, probably day six, but we're still in it. And there's cacophony, there's randomness, there's logic, there's craziness, there's beauty, there's ugliness, there's sickness and hurt. And this is because we're expanding, we're exploding, because we're still in creation. We are not uh, finished beings, and nothing around us is. So the Big Bang, my point, could have been the mechanism that God used to create the universe. And there is nothing in the theory itself which proves that there is no such being as God, even as it suggests that God isn't needed for that to have occurred. 
Okay, so moving along. Evolution and natural selection. Now here is where people really argue where if you don't believe in God, if you are an atheist or you have agnostic leanings toward atheism, you're going to say you simply cannot accept evolution and religion. They cannot coexist. Um, I'm going to ask you to, um, you know, and Christians certainly believe this and perhaps other religions, but I'm going to ask you to open your heart and your mind and your eyes to what I'm about to say. So yes, according to most scientists, all life on earth has a common ancestor, and this is the nexus of this argument, okay? So again, with evolution, the belief is all life on earth has a common ancestor. But in order to produce the immense amount of difference among all living organisms, certain ones had to evolve into distinct species. Populations of organisms develop different traits through mechanisms such as mutation. These organisms with these traits that were more beneficial to survival, such as, um, for example, a frog who, um, whose brown coloring allows it to be camouflaged in a swamp, or an animal who has a shell and can withstand beating, animals who are poisonous, animals who have wings and can escape. So what I'm saying is if you have a good defense mechanism, you were naturally selected for survival, hence the term natural selection, or only the strong survive. Okay, so if you have a really good defense mechanism, you survive longer than other species who all evolved from the same common ancestor. Now, here's an example of an argument that one cannot believe in both evolution and creationism. So I'm going to expand this idea. If one takes the creation stories of the Bible literally, one would have to believe that species were created separately from one another, which is in direct conflict with a central tenet of evolution that states that all life shares a common ancestor. Thus, literal interpretations of the Bible have led some Christians to adopt anti-evolution beliefs. So, um, young earth creationism is the belief that the species were created in their present form six to 10,000 years ago. Again, um, God created the world in six days. Well, a lot of people say that God's day is a thousand years, ergo, that was 6,000 years ago, okay, is what they say. Um, but there's other Christians who adopt old earth creationism and believe that the species were created in their present form over millions of years. But there's even 
other Christians who adopt a mix of special creationism and evolution in which groups such as birds, mammals, and fish were created separately from one another by God, but then subsequently evolved, or which is like a creationism theory with some evolution theory thrown in, or that all life evolved except for humans who were created separately by God and in the image of God. That's also known as humans-only creationism. And yet, there are many Christians who do not believe in special creationism and instead accept evolution. So they believe that the entire Bible is um, allegorical to what we know as reality or science. A geneticist named Francisco J. Ayala who was also ordained as a Dominican priest, sees no conflict between Darwinism and faith. His early work was to first, was first to, uh, his early work was the first to demonstrate the extensive nature of genetic variation and the action of natural selection at the protein level his measures led to important modifications to the theory of the uniform molecular clock, which is used to time when species diverged from a common ancestor based on differences in either protein structure or DNA. Ayala uses evolution to help answer a central paradox of Christianity, namely, and I'm going to get more into this. How can a loving, all-knowing God allow evil and suffering? And his answer is natural selection. Nature is poorly designed. And we think, you know, God is perfect. But nature, he, he suggests that the poor design is perfect for what we go through on this planet. There's um, oddities that we suffer, such as blind spots built into the human eye and an excess of teeth jammed into our jaws. And then he goes on to say, parasites are sadists. Predators are cruel. Natural selection can explain the ruthlessness of nature. And Ayala argues it removes evil. Um, or that, that requirement of an intentional act of free will from this living world. Very interesting uh, hypothesis there. That there's no such thing as evil. It's just the way nature is. Interesting, coming from a Christian. He says, Darwin solved the problem. And Ayala refers to science-savvy Christian theologians who present a God that is continuously engaged in the creative process through undirected natural selection by addressing re religious people on their own terms. Ayala aims to offer a better answer than intelligent design or creationism. 
That is one theory I had never heard um, coming from either a secularist or a Christian um, that um, God did not, or there is a God, but there's no evil in the world. But <clears throat> he makes an interesting point, and I, I really like to think and meditate on what he's had to say. And there are many, many, many more um, laws of science, and I just won't have time to get through all of them and like mix and match them or compare and contrast them to theism. Um, but I'm gonna um, I'm gonna talk about one more, and that is the theory of general relativity, or what we know as the theory of relativity by Albert Einstein. And this was his major breakthrough to say that space and time are not absolutes and that gravity is not simply a force applied to an object or mass. Rather, the gravity associated with any mass curves, the very space and time which is also called space-time, it curves the space-time around it. Now, to conceptualize this, imagine you're traveling across the Earth, you're driving or flying, you're traveling across the Earth in a straight line heading east. Or if you're on the East Coast, just go west, I guess. Now, keep going east, get on a boat and go east so that we're all on the same page. Okay, so you're traveling across the earth in a straight line heading east, starting somewhere in the northern hemisphere, okay? Now we're all on the same page. After a while, if someone were to pinpoint your position on a map, you'd actually be both east and far south of your original position. Why? Because the earth is curved. To travel directly east, you'd have to take into account the shape of the earth and angle yourself slightly north. So think about the difference between a flat paper map and a spherical globe. Now you flat earthers out there and there's so many of you, you're not going to agree with me. Try it. Now space is pretty much the same. So, for example, to the astronauts on the space shuttle orbiting the Earth or the space station or, yeah, or in one of the shuttles, it can look like they're traveling on a straight line through space. But in reality, the space-time around them is being curved by Earth's gravity, as it would be with any large object with immense gravity, such as a planet or a black hole. And this causes them to move both forward and to appear to orbit Earth. Now, Einstein, um, excuse the airplane going over me. I told those airplanes not to fly over me while I'm doing my podcast. And they go and they fly over me. Anyway, Einstein opined on his own theory in his 1934 book, Mine, Weltbild, translated into English as The World as I See It. 
arguing that the supreme task of the physicist is to search for general elementary laws that can be woven together to give a comprehensive picture of the world, which is the German Weltbild. Einstein notes that there is no logical path to these laws. Rather, they arise through the Mm, intuition, testing on a sympathetic understanding of experience. That's his quote. He often knew intuitively and imaginatively before he could offer proof, which seems to, um, mm, I don't know if it flies in the face of, um, you know, uh, trying to um, prove a theory because it all has to start with a belief don't you think you have to make a hypothesis which means you believe something and then you go about disproving it and I think that's the scientific process so would you say Einstein and others work by faith at least at the beginning that could be argued In a 1954 letter, however, Einstein commented, and I quote, the Bible is a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. I don't think that sounds wrong if you think about it. But then again, Einstein also declared that, I quote, Science without religion is blind, and religion without science is lame. Now, Richard Dawkins believes that this is an admission of atheism. But you could also ask, or is it an admission that God is a mathematician and a physicist? The famed British mathematical physicist Sir Arthur Eddington saw Einstein's paper and recognized that there was an opportunity with the 1919 total solar eclipse in Brazil to put the theory of general relativity to the test. Why an eclipse? A unique thing about Einstein's theory is it predicted the gravity of the sun would bend the light of stars as that light passed the sun. Remember, just like Earth does when a spaceship orbits it. It would take a total solar eclipse blocking the sun to make it possible for scientists to see light passing by the sun. So Arthur Eddington organized a trip to Brazil. They observed the sun during the solar eclipse and the stars right next to the sun's limb. And indeed, they were able to confirm that the starlight was bent by the amount of the theory of general relativity predicted. So his theory came to life with the solar eclipse. It was the confirmation they were all looking for, and it got picked up by the newspapers around the world, and suddenly 
Albert Einstein becomes a household name, and his theory of relativity became established in the minds of physicists and astronomers. It's that theory of general relativity that predicts there's a beginning to the universe. Space and time had a beginning, which means there must have been an agent beyond space and time that created our universe of matter, energy, and space and time. Now, with the biblical God, the universe doesn't exist until space and time exists. He created all of that, is the argument of the theist. And I am going to skip over, but I'm going to mention so that you can do your own studies and maybe your own comparison contrast, um, you know, the secular view and the theist view. Laws of thermodynamics, Newton's laws of motion, really interesting. Hubble's law of cosmic expansion, Kepler's laws of planetary motion, the universal law of gravitation, Archimedes' buoyancy principle, and Heisenberg's uncertainty, uncertainty principle. Look those up on your own. Study, study, study. So, um... I'm going to bring up now a another um, scientist who is enjoying a lot of um, popularity right now, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he, um, I'm not going to um, label him because he does not like labels. But when I was listening to his agnostic leanings or even his atheistic leanings, even though I don't think he's an atheist, but he leans that way. His arguments were resembling my theism. So he asked the questions, is God all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, or, and or all-good? Good questions. He brings up the 1755 earthquake in Lisbon. Now, in 1755, Lisbon was the uh, most holy city in Europe. And that earthquake occurred on All Saints Day when everyone is in church. At the time, the churches were the largest buildings and the first to fall. And everyone was killed even though they were doing the right thing. So, because that happened, he argues that maybe God isn't all-powerful or all-knowing. Otherwise, he would have prevented those people from being killed or even prevented the earthquake from even happening. But if he is all-powerful and all-knowing, maybe he is not all-loving or all-good. And to those, I would also ask, is God an unblinking sphinx gaping out blankly into the desert? Or is he a manifestation of the laws of science and universe? Or is he an errant programmer? Or is he like the Greek gods, petty, arbitrary, and mean-spirited? So um, to further uh, delve into these wonderments, let's talk about blessings and spiritual experiences where some people say, I've seen the light, I've been saved, or the reason 
I've got health and wealth and a family that loves me is because God has blessed me. And if you don't have the same things, you must have done something wrong. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson posits, he gives, he gives you this example. Get a thousand people and they flip a coin. Whoever flips tails has to sit down. That's about half the people. Now you repeat this at 250, 125, 60, 30, 15, 8, 4, 2, and 1. Each time, approximately half the people sit down per flip. Now at the very end, one person remains standing, having flipped heads 10 consecutive times, and they say, I felt the energy. Now, where the reporters come around to do interviews, they ignore the 999 that flipped tails at some point and just focus on the one who flipped heads each and every time. And Tyson goes on to say, whatever God is, he isn't luck. Wow, boy, do I agree with that. So let's talk about blessings versus luck. Columnist Rachel Held Evans Evans once noted, for some reason, I feel like calling myself blessed, sends the message that I have somehow earned God's special favor, that God is rewarding me for good behavior, and that the millions of people who suffer from war, famine, poverty, and sickness because they weren't lucky or blessed or fortunate enough to be born into the wealthiest nation in the world are simply not as loved by God. Remember that favoritism is partiality or bias. To show favoritism is to give preference to one person over others with equal claims. It is similar to discrimination and may be based on conditions such as social class, wealth, clothing, actions, what have you. The Bible is clear that favoritism is not God's will for our lives. First, favoritism is incongruent with God's character. God does not show favoritism, it says in Romans. All are equal before him. Ephesians says there is no favoritism. With the Lord and Colossians teaches God's fairness in judgment. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. What does that mean? It means God also obeys the laws of nature. We may not understand all the reasons he is a law-abiding citizen, but apparently he is. So if he exists and he's our father and he is the personification of love, I believe he suffers with us. And um, I'll get into that in a moment. So if God isn't luck, is he love? And Christ on the cross, once again, he defines love as self-sacrifice. He is goodness in the face of the vilest evil. And he performs a pure act of creation. As he gives his life on the cross, he gives life to us. And if this is what God has to do to convey love in the world and in the universe, do we human beings 
really even know what love is. And that's something else um, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, do we even really know what love is, we human beings? And again, um, at least part of eternal love, and this part is very hard to comprehend, is a God that suffers with us. Jesus doesn't explain why there is suffering, illness, and death in the world. He doesn't allow the problem of evil to be the subject of a seminar, says N.T. Wright. He allows evil to do its worst to him. He exhausts it, drains it of its power, and emerges with new life. And he does that for himself, and then he does that for everyone else. But we're mere, mere human beings, so um, whether you're an atheist or a theist or anything in between, um, it's important to create your own love. Love isn't just around the corner and it isn't hiding. We must create it like we're creating our own big, big bang theory. Love encourages potential. In this world, we congratulate the people who succeed but fail to encourage those who haven't. And we can change that with or without God. Okay. Um, I'm just watching the time here. So I'm going to have to end with just three more little notes, even though I have a lot more to say. Um, in the Bible, there's a blind man at the temple and he's crying out for alms. He's begging and the apostles or the disciples get into this little um, philosophical debate. They're like, okay, this guy is in a really pathetic situation. Is it because of the sins that he's committed or is it because of the sins his parents have committed? Is this something inherited or is this something he brought on himself? They ask Jesus, what do you think? And Jesus says, help him. It doesn't matter, okay, if he's a son of God, and it doesn't matter if um, he has a common ancestor with the rest of us. It doesn't matter that he is not um, naturally selected. If you can help him, help him. Help him. You got some alms? Give him alms. That's what he's asking for, and he needs it. Give it, give it, give it to him. And that is the message for anyone, any one of us. So um, let's see, where do I want to go here? There's so many places I could go right now. So our species has an ability to know good from evil, if you want to call it evil, or to see suffering as evil. And we have to make choices in one direction or another. A world without suffering would be a world without a humanity free to choose between good and evil. I can't help but think that such a world would be less a utopia than a form of totalitarianism where humans act in lockstep with an unyielding divine will or the will of a crazy programmer. Without evil, wrongdoing, and injustice, the laws of nature and of science and of the universe as we presently know it, to the extent we know it, are broken. 
So whether you believe in creationism or in uh, evolution, we're living in a petri dish and it is, it is dangerous and crazy things happen. So the best that we can all do, and we can all agree on this, is to take care of each other. And now I'm going to end with bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. And I'm going to read the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. So even if you don't believe in Jesus, these are really informative and great, wonderful teachings. Um, lots of wisdom here that will help us evolve into something better or change our universe for something better. So without ado, I'm going to read from Matthew 5 of the King James Version. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Ye have heard it, it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of the Father who is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So remember, we never know which laws of the universe are at play at any given time, and we're not very good judges of that. And also remember that the number of atoms in a single, single molecule, remember that 
the number of atoms in a single molecule of a person's DNA is equal to the number of stars in a galaxy, and it's made of the same stuff. Do good to each other, to the people you love, and to the people you hate, because we are living in this Petri dish, whether it's of God's making or if it's evolution, I think is worthy of contemplation, but in the end, it doesn't matter to have a good life. We must do these things. Again, if you'd like to donate to Mars Messina Presents, please do throw through my Venmo account at MDM773. Until next week, buena noche.